I've been, I've been thinking about scrolling and how, how crazy it is that we now find it perfectly normal to engage with many different aspects of our life and of the world by scrolling. I don't know what comes to your mind when I say the word, the word scrolling, but I guess most of us would instinctively think of the movement of our thumbs across the screen of a smartphone, right? It's almost like you get a trigger reaction. Someone says the word and your thumbs start twitching, right? Scrolling. So often we do it. And I was thinking about the word and the concept of scrolling, and thinking that this concept did not exist when I was a child, not in the way we use it today. It just wasn't a thing. And then came personal computers. Computers, I guess, existed out there in huge rooms somewhere. But then came personal computers. And I still remember when I discovered the magic of the page up, page down buttons. I don't know which generation you're from, this makes no sense, but you could jump a whole page by pressing one button. It's amazing, it's magical. And then came mouses, right? Computer mouses, that is. And then mouses with those little scroll wheels in the middle. Those were highly technological and they could make you go so quickly through things. And then, Smartphones with touchscreens. And suddenly, we are all scrolling our way through life. We scroll through pictures. We scroll through a gazillion of items that we might shop at the click of a finger. We scroll through the news. Just go through it. We scroll through the texts that we are reading. Many of our computer screens now, you can just scroll like that while you're reading whatever. And the speed with which we go through information is quite astounding. While all the while, we are supposedly sorting out what is worthy of a few more seconds of our attention and what isn't. I think it's no wonder that we are a generation with the attention span of a goldfish. <laughs> just can't. It's just so much information so quickly. And this is, of course, not an altogether new development. Uh, we could perhaps trace it back to the first time someone organized a manuscript into a codex instead of a scroll. And it's actually a bit funny to think about it because we now use the word scroll as a verb. Right? We use the word Scroll as a verb, and it's a verb for going quickly through information while finding something in an actual scroll. The object actually takes quite a lot of time. And that's why at some point came the codex, which is what we now think of as a physical book. When a manuscript is organized in pages which are glued together so that you can flip through them and find something. And that's, that was a revolution. Instead of slowly looking through a scroll, you could go straight to a certain page where you knew you could find what you were looking for. 
amazing and revolutionary. We don't think about it because we grew up with it, and now we grew up with technology. But the notion that you could just say, let's open our Bibles, for instance, in Matthew 23, and people go, there it is. You don't have to roll up a whole scroll. So that was amazing, but still, I think the past 50 years or so of technological development has seen this process elevated to just a whole other level. What with the internet and all sorts of interactive technology, it's just crazy to think about how much this changed in the lifespan of my parents, for instance. Now, I was thinking about all of this. I was thinking about scrolling when I... I picked up my phone one morning and suddenly I realized how almost diametrically opposite scrolling is to oral traditions. Because oral traditions demand time. They demand time with the content you want to learn take in, and be able to pass on. You don't learn something in an oral tradition by quickly running your eyes through it for a couple of seconds or listening to it at 1.5 times speed as you would to a slightly boring podcast. You need to spend time with each word, with each sentence. You need to take in the structure and the flow of the story, the flow of the poetry, the the cadence of the words and get that into your body to learn it. And the Psalms, which we talk about every summer in OAC and which we're talking about today, the Psalms emerge from oral tradition and not from scrolling mentality. So the Psalms are this collection in, which we find in the Christian Bible scriptures as we have it in a codex today. <laughs> we find it more or less in the middle of it. And it's a collection of songs, prayers, chants. And they were compiled and gathered together as this collection. And they were written, and they're poems, and they were written to be used in the liturgical and spiritual life of a community of faith. They were written to be learned, they were written to be chanted, they were written to be sung, they were written to be learned in our bodies. Many of them were pilgrimage songs that people would say as they walked on their way to the festivals in Jerusalem. Or they were psalms used in the worship of the people, in the learning of the people. And that the psalms are part of an oral tradition is particularly explicit in the psalm that I want to read with you today. And this is a psalm that was meant to be sung uh, or chanted in a responsive manner. So most likely, by what we know, or in any case that has been the traditional reading and application of the psalm through quite a long time, uh, it is to be read so that the priest reads the first line of each verse and the community would read the second part, which constitutes a kind of a refrain. So I actually want to invite you to read this psalm with me today. And to do it as it would be done, even though we're reading, we're not knowing it by heart. So I want to invite you to stand with me, if you can. And we're going to read from Psalm 136. And it will become very quickly 
obvious how this goes. So I will start, I will read the first part of the verse, and you will read the second part, part which is the color, the, the, the chorus. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Give, thank, give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. To him who alone does great wonders. Who by his understanding made the heavens. Who spread out the earth upon the waters. Who made the great lights. The sun to govern the day. The moon and stars to govern the night. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt and brought Israel out from among them. With a mighty hand and outstretched arm. To him who divided the Red Sea asunder and brought Israel through the midst of it. But swept Pharaoh and his army into the Red Sea. To him who led his people through the wilderness. To him who struck down great kings. And killed mighty kings. Sihon, king of the Amorites. And Og, king of Bashan. And gave their land as an inheritance. An inheritance to his servant Israel. He remembered us in our low estate and freed us from our enemies. He gives food to every creature. Give thanks to the God of heavens. You may sit down. The reason I... I started thinking and have been talking about the whole, uh, the whole scrolling thing. Is that I read this psalm, and as I, as I read it, I realized that the refrain in this psalm is the kind of thing that we would probably just scroll over. I don't know if you noticed the response in the room starts going down after a while, after we've said it like four or five times, and we start going, I'm this forever. It's probably the kind of thing we would scroll over. We read it once. We don't need to spend time reading it again. It's old information. So we just scroll on looking for what else is there. But when we engage with this psalm from the perspective of an oral tradition, this refrain is anything but superfluous. It is the very thing that dictates the rhythm, the pulse, the life of the psalm. It is the focal point 
of the psalm. It is that which we remember best and which gets engraved in our memories and helps us to remember the rest of the psalm. It sets the rhythm. It lets us know where we're going. And that is of fundamental importance. While Psalm 136 has a number of themes, a plural of themes, it tells these themes weaved into this main resounding thread that repeats again and again and again. God's love endures forever. God's love endures forever. God's love endures forever. So I want to take a step back just for a minute and talk a bit about, okay, what are these themes then? This plural, because this is the one theme, right? Going across. But what are these themes in this psalm? And there are several ways in which we can split this psalm thematically, but one quite easy and straightforward way is to split it into five parts plus a closing statement. Now, the first part, verses 1 to 3, they focus on God's godness, in a way. And that is to say, that which God is in himself, independently or prior to any kind of action. For he is good, the God of gods, the Lord of lords. And then verses 4 to 9, they focus on God as a creator and his power in creation. So the psalmist talks about who does great wonders, uh, made the, whose understanding made the heavens, the earth upon the waters, the great light, governed the days, the stars to govern the nights, and so on and so forth. Then from verse, so that's about God as creator and his power in creation. And then verse 10 to 16, focus on God as a redeemer and as a deliverer. To him who struck down the firstborn of Egypt and brought Israel out from among them with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, divided the Red Sea asunder so Israel could go through and live. God as a redeemer and a deliverer. And then verses 17 to 22 focus on God as a provider, the one who gave the promised land, which is the, the symbol of God taking care of his people for those to whom this oral tradition belongs. And then finally, the focus, verses 23 to 25, focus on God's kindness to the weak and the lowly. And the way in which these verses, 23 to 25, about the weak and the lowly, follow the former verses about God as a provider and a redeemer and deliverer is quite important because they stress that the focus of the psalm is on God's deeds and God's attributes and not on Israel's. And then finally, verse 26, give thanks to the God of heavens. It works as a closing statement that ties everything together. So it sort of closes full circle to the first verses. Give thanks to the God of heavens. That is to say, the God who is God because he is God. So the stuff that is addressed in the middle of the psalm, it may inform us about God in the sense that they are part of the story through which the psalmist understands God's action in history, but they are not what makes God, God. So that's the structure of the psalm, basically. 
And all of these themes, they are very important and fundamental to how the people of Israel, to whom this psalm belonged in their oral tradition, they are very important and fundamental to how they understood themselves and how they understood their faith. And in fact, you could remove that repetitive echo, his love endures forever, and the psalm would still make sense. It would say something, and you could read it, and one thing comes after the other. Makes sense. But that's not what the psalmist does. And therefore, I would argue that that is not what the psalmist is addressing. In retelling the story and reaffirming these things, the psalmist inserts this insistent note, this rhythm that keeps on ringing throughout the psalm. God's love endures forever. And that is what the psalmist is telling us. That is what the psalmist is giving us. He's giving us a key, a lens, a key to understand. The psalm, to say it differently, it seems invested not so much in saying who God is, what God has done, and in affirming Israel's place as God's people, as they understood it. Rather, it is interested in how we are to understand who God is, how we are to understand what God has done and his choosing of Israel. The psalm is saying that all of that has to be understood in terms of God's love. This is how you read it. This is how you look at it. That is also how I want to read this psalm today. Because there's a lot we could discuss considering, for example, God's justice. And these verses about striking down and killing kings and peoples and taking their lands. There's a lot of things we need to work with here. A lot of discomfort that we shouldn't put aside. And I don't mean to dismiss these questions. I don't think they should be dismissed. But I'm not going to dwell on them today because they are not the subject of this psalm. This was a psalm to be sung by Israel in order to help them in understanding their own story of deliverance in the context of God's love. Because this was the story that the people knew and that they told themselves all the time. The stuff being addressed is not news. <laughs> the distinctive character, which is also the unifying theme here, is not this story that they knew already, but the understanding of this story in terms of God's love. That's what characterizes Psalm 136 versus reading Chronicles or something else where the story is told. It is understanding this story in terms of God's love, or more precisely in terms of God's loving kindness, which some translations use, but it's an expression for God's love that is rooted in his acts of mercy and grace in the world. His loving kindness. 
So what this psalm is giving us is a key for understanding God's action in history. To the people of God, this means also a key to understanding themselves. So to say the same thing differently, if, if the people of God said all the things they knew about God's power, authority, and might, and told all the stories they had came, come to understand as God's acts of deliverance, and declared that through those acts, God made them into God's people, but failed to understand that these things were an expression of God's loving kindness, then it would all have been in vain. They would have completely missed the point. That, I would argue, is the point that Psalm 136 drives home in its poetical oral structure. That's what sits again and resonates in us. And it is into this people and into this oral and theological tradition that Jesus comes. As a Jew into a people that sang these psalms. And it is into this oral and theological tradition that Jesus comes and takes this key of love and he embraces it fully and he expresses it wonderfully. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Whoever believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. These are most likely St. John's words about Jesus not Jesus himself speaking, but he uses these words because he understands that Jesus affirms and embodies the principle of love as a hermeneutical key. That's the theological word for the, um, the key through which we understand. Jesus understands history, understands himself, and understands his actions through this key. Very truly I tell you, and these words John writes as a quote from Jesus himself. Very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can do only what he sees his father doing. Because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these so that you will be amazed. Doing the works of the Father is doing the works of the Father's love. And that key of loving kindness and how it is embodied and made perfect in Christ, that is the gospel for us, and that is how the gospel is to play out in our lives. A new command I give you. Again, this is St. John quoting Jesus. Something that marks him so much that he recalls these words when they are being put down. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. The psalm tells us that if the Israelites fail to understand God, their faith and their history in the grounds of God's loving kindness, they would misunderstand their faith and their place in history. The gospel of Jesus Christ tells us 
that if we don't understand our God and our faith in the grounds of God's loving kindness, and if we don't understand incarnation as the perfect expression of God's loving kindness, then we misunderstand God's revelation through Christ, and we misunderstand the gospel. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. His love endures forever. This course has to permeate and inform our lives and our understandings. And for us as Christians, have the face of Emmanuel, God with us on it. Or whatever we do and say and live will not be gospel. At least not as St. John speaks of the gospel. And not a gospel that I would be willing to speak of. In 1 John, when John is then writing as a pastor to his communities, to the congregations that he pastors, he says, Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. For John, to know God is to know Christ. To know Christ is to know love. To follow Christ is to love. The words of John echo also in the conversation on, of Christ with Nicodemus, where we get this John 3.16 from, right? When Nicodemus asked him, what is this thing? You're like, how are we, what are you talking about being born again of the Spirit? What is this all about? How are we to be born and know God? Through a birth of love in Christ. Christ-like love is the distinctive feature of the Christian faith. Not our story, not our dogmas, not our doctrines, not our temples, not our songs, not our deeds, but Christ-like loving kindness and how that love shapes and informs all of these other things our temples, our songs, our dogmas, or doctrines. And if we flip this, we get it all wrong. Paul understood this. Maybe because he was such an intense person. <laughs> he knew he could not get this wrong. Paul understood how dangerous it is to try to subtract love from the equation. Paul was keen on spelling this out clearly. What we do as Christ followers does not make us unique per se or necessarily make the difference. What we say as Christ followers does not make us unique or necessarily make a difference. Yet, the love of God revealed and revealing itself in Christ and Christ in us, that is the real gospel, the power of God for those who believe. And when Paul is talking about this danger, as he writes in what is very well known, his letter to the Corinthians, first letter to the Corinthians in chapter 13, he says this, 
and yet I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak in tongues of man or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardships that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, it is not envy, it is not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So are the words of the Apostle Paul. And I want to finish by just sharing with you my understanding of why Paul says that the greatest among faith, hope, and love is love in the context of what he's written here. The thing is, faith without love is very easily condescending. And it can even be cruel. The testimony of this is all around us within our Christian faith and in other faiths, whether they come in a religious guise or a secular one. Faith without love is condescending and very quickly becomes cruel and even violent. Hope without love is selfish. It can very easily become greed. Sets us apart, doesn't bring us together. It aims things for myself and not healing for the world. Hope without love is selfish and can easily become greed. Faith without love is condescending and can even be cruel. But when these two things are intertwined and are tempered by love, then we are tuning to God's melody. Then we're going into the rhythm of God's grace and action in the world. So I think the psalmist was onto something with this mantra of his in Psalm 136. God's love endures forever. 
God's love endures forever. God's love endures forever. Today I don't believe God's love endures forever. Today I see it, God's love endures forever. Today I feel self-righteous and God's love endures forever. Today I have no hope, God's love endures forever. God's love endures forever. If you play an instrument like a guitar or an acoustic instrument of some kind, you will know that it reacts to time and to weather and to all sorts of things. If I bring the guitar from my home here in the winter, I will have to tune it when I arrive here because those temperature shocks will just make it go all out of tune. It always needs to be tuned. The key to which we tune our lives and our understandings and our actions of faith is God's loving kindness and how it is expressed in Christ. And if we stop tuning it to that, we're just making noise. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you that you may know that he is gracious towards you. May the Lord turn his face towards each and every one of you and give you peace. So go in the peace of our Lord Jesus Christ and serve the world and serve each other and serve the Lord joyfully.